In this episode of Elton Reads Book Week, we'll take a scenic route through the male half of the Kinsey Report with a book titled American Sexual Behavior in the Kinsey Report. And we'll find out just how incredibly not weird male sexuality really is or isn't. Countdown for blast off. X minus five, four, three, two, X minus one, fire. Hi, welcome to Elton Reads Book a Week, a podcast dedicated to jarring itself awake after letting an open book fall on its face. My name is Elton, and I read a book a week. The book this time around is American Sexual Behavior and the Kinsey Report, which is not a report on how an entire nation behaved whilst trying to fuck someone or something else, another nation or planet. And according to its own dust cover, is a detailed analysis of the conditions disclosed in sexual behavior in the human male and other investigations. Those other investigations it mentioned, by the way, are sexuality-related and do not include the Loch Ness Monster, Dutch Schultz's treasure, or why the Mothman couldn't just hold up a fucking sign that the bridge was going to collapse. Jesus. Anyway, I checked. It was none of those. I was pretty disappointed, though, truth be told, like I said before, I'm easily disappointed. Still, I mean, despite not having any real freakishly awesome investigations to boast, it does, in fact, include a detailed analysis of the first Kinsey report, which, of course, focused on male sexuality and all the fucking that goes along with that. So, I mean, not a total loss, right? To be clear, I should state that this book isn't the Kinsey report verbatim, but an analysis of it, meaning... Someone else read the sexy-ass stats, graphs, and sexual jargon and, and then dumbed it down for us, non-scientific folks. And uh, as anyone breathing knows, there's no kind of sexy quite like a clinical interview statistics and cold, methodical analysis kind of sexy. Hell, your panties probably got all wet with your boner just thinking about that, right? Just just be saying it. I know. That, that panty boner thing, that... That was on purpose. Maybe. Maybe. Maybe I don't know how sexual organs work. Don't judge me. I'm trying, okay? Regardless, most of us can agree that the interviews and stuff I mentioned are not, in fact, sexy. Being interviewed by scientists who then analyze your answers and compile them with other anonymous answers into a report isn't the best sexual stimuli for anybody. In fact, I'm willing to bet that if put to the test, it may actually limp more dick and dry more pussy than a bestiality porno with Betty White. But not by much. The same goes for books about sex that contain all those things. Just boring, boring shit. All the stats and stuff. Not bestiality, I don't think. Bestiality is a different animal altogether. <laughs> See, it's, I don't know. I don't want to fetish shame. Because that's bad, I think. I've heard. I mean, don't, okay, don't fuck animals. It's just probably, it's not a good idea. Not, I mean, not, not to fuck. Just don't fuck animals. Bestiality probably has its fair share of fans, not going to lie. Maybe even some that listen to this. I don't know. Would there be enough to fill up a stadium, though? 
you think? Definitely not a football stadium, though, right? Right? Imagine walking in on that fucking crowd. Wow, there are a lot of people at the stadium here today. Oh, excuse me, sir. Hi. Yeah, what, what is going on here? Is this a convention or something? I don't want to talk about it. Sure. I'm Sure. Sure, but there's, there is a pretty big crowd here, right? I really don't want to talk about it. No, it's a it's a convention about animals, though, I think, right? Or dogs or something? Or how, how the f- fuck? How, how, how do you know that? Oh, your shirt says animal lovers get the most tail. I, I don't want to talk about it. This is going down a very dark and twisted path, isn't it? Let's get back to wanting to fuck statistics, okay? Or something like that. Look, what I'm saying is, unless you're bumping uglies on a pile of papers filled with stats, you probably want nothing to do with them sexually. You know? That's what I'm getting at. And back there when I mentioned Betty White, I apologize for that. If she dies before this episode is released, I'm going to feel really, really bad about that. Still, I think the statement still stands. Hell, even more if she's dead. Just saying. So if sex statistics aren't what gets most people's motors running with squishy sex thoughts, how would a report filled with them start a battle over sex and how we talk about it in everything from the education system to talk shows? And it still rages today. While it also sparked a sexual revolution and helped along the feminism movement and, and also inspired the creation of the most iconic porno mag of all time. How to do all that? The Kinsey reports were a groundbreaking look into the moist, wet nooks and crannies of American sexual behavior. And according to experts, the best sciencey thing to happen to sex since the invention of breast implants, Viagra, and silicone dildos combined. That's right. All of them. And by experts, of course I mean myself, who is in fact an expert of nothing. Human sexual behavior is a subject that, like a defective battery-powered butt plug, sparks a lot of uncomfortable feelings in people. It's a surprisingly unexplored field of study. Human sexual behavior, that is, not defective butt plugs. Why isn't human sexual behavior study more? That's what I'm trying to get back to. Because people hate talking about their bodies, let alone the parts they have the most fun with, of course. Don't think so? Let's try something. I'll ask you a few questions. I want you to answer them completely honestly because, well, they're about you. And only you know the answers. And I can't hear you. So why not? Why not answer them honestly anyway? Ready? Ready? Here goes. How often do you masturbate? I'll give you a second. Have you ever masturbated or had sex with someone while thinking about a friend or family member? Same sex or otherwise? Go ahead and answer. Have you ever masturbated while while thinking of an object instead of a person? I'll give you a second to think about that too. Answer when you're ready. Now imagine openly discussing those answers with a stranger or group of strangers face to face. I mean, those were mild. Just imagine answering something more revealing. I mean, those were pretty revealing, but still. No one wants that shit. No. All those judgments you think are being leveled at you because of your weird-ass answers. And yeah, yeah, your answers were weird. Because deep down, everyone thinks their answers were weird. Because 
Everyone is actually weird. Okay, relax. We're all weird here. You're safe. Not me. You might be thinking to yourself, yes. Yes, you too. Okay, the topic of human sexuality has divided, enraged, and confused people like no other because it involves every human being's secret selves. The minute you bring up people's love junk and inquire as to what they like to do with it, they lose their minds, mostly because it seems accusatory. People's defenses get triggered. All the insecurities and fears get riled up like you'll be discovered or something. Yet, regardless of all that, behind all of that, is a deep-seated desire to want to know more about it. We want to know if we're doing it wrong, or if what we're doing or feeling is quote-unquote normal. If what turns us on is wildly out of sync with everyone else. If we're the only ones who get a boner every time they see a wiffle ball bat leaning on something. Do you? Do you? You? In the back? You? You? How about you? No? No. So how much easier would life be if we just knew how and why people liked what they liked sexually? How much better would our lives be if we learned about sex in a more full and honest way? No more guessing games. No more guilty dissatisfaction. No more awkward conversations involving seemingly bizarre uses for wiffle ball bats. We were told for a very long time that sex was just a thing people did and uh, should only do to make babies. Otherwise, you're giving God a reason to finger wag and go, and Satan a reason to melt your genitals off while laughing. Plus, a healthy serving of all the disgust and shame that goes along with that. Still, everyone knows and everyone knew that everyone was doing it and had a sneaking suspicion that they were doing it in the freakiest way. Embarrassment ran rampant and awkward looks ruled the day. Only very recently in our history have we ever tried to crack the code on the hows and whys and the whats of what we do with our naughty bits by throwing actual science at the unspoken sport of fucking. That attempt to peek under the hood of our sexuality was the Kinsey Report. And since its release, shit really got weird. And thankfully, it hasn't stopped yet. But, like I said before, wading through all those stats and graphs and shit... Who fucking needs that? Luckily, somebody else did that boring-ass slog and turned it into something you and I can understand. So let's talk about the authors for a second, and maybe suss out a possible angle they took in their analysis, because there's always an angle. Or at the very least, we can put them into a handy fuck-marry-kill bracket. Okay? That'll be... We can do that. Let's start with David Loth, for no particular reason... Other than, upon first glance, I thought his name looked like David Lee Roth, the lead singer of the band Van Halen. An association I made, by the way, disturbingly quick, uh, making me wonder why my brain reverts back to being a 10-year-old listening to Diver Down instead of solving my terrible money situation. This regrettably happens a lot to me, and also regrettably won't be the last time it happens either. So David Loth was the author of almost 50 books that ranged from Public Plunder, A History of Graft in America, and The Erotic in Literature. Which, for those playing at home, The Erotic in Literature was voted best possible title to suck the fun out of both literature and erotic. Runners-up included Erotic Literature Read to Grandparents, A Beginner's Guide to Erotic Literature for Children, and Finding a Penis, a Word Search Lover's Book to Finding Erotic Words in Literature, Volume 1. 
Mr. Loth was born in St. Louis on December 7, 1899 to Albert and Fanny Sunshine Loth. Later, he received his bachelor's in journalism from the University of Missouri in 1920. He was a journalist for 20 years in the United States, Europe, and Australia. Among the many newspapers he worked on were the New York Times and the New York World. Heard of the New York Times. So, fuck? No, kill. Yeah, nobody would miss him. I don't, I don't think, I mean, sure he's got the erotic literature thing, but I mean, grafting, which politically means being the unscrupulous use of a politician's authority for personal gain. I think he might have had uh, corrupt politicians as, as enemies or something to write a book like that. Maybe some career criminal types. So, I mean, they could be blamed for the murder. I'm overthinking this. Moving on, Morris L. Ernst, the other author of this Kinsey sextravaganza, was born in Uniontown, Alabama on August 23, 1888, to Carl and Sarah Bernheim Ernst. He attended the Horace Mann School and graduated from Williams College in Williamstown, Massachusetts in 1909. He studied the law at night at the New York Law School, where he graduated in 1912 and was admitted to the New York Bar in 1913. So quick. He joined the board of the American Civil Liberties Union, or the ACLU, heard of him, in 1927 as one of the most prominent and successful ACLU attorneys from the 1920s through the 1960s. His biggest claim to fame came in 1933, when on behalf of Random House, he successfully defended James Joyce's novel, Ulysses, against obscenity charges, heard of that book, leading to its distribution in the U.S. He won similar cases on behalf of Radcliffe Hall's The Well of Loneliness and Arthur Schnitzler's Schnitzler's Casanova's Homecoming. Schnitzler's. That's what I'm going with. Schnitzler's. Schnitzler's. Now, if you're wondering what was seen about James Joyce's Ulysses, the portion, uh, it, it, it was actually serialized first. He submitted it to a literary magazine in the 1920s. Um, so he, the actual book was, was slowly fed to this magazine over time and then eventually was compiled into just Ulysses, the book. Well, the portion called Nausicaa, Nausicaa, N-A-U-S-I-C-A-A, Nausicaa, Nausicaa, anyway, the offending passage was about Leopold Bloom, that's the fictional protagonist in the story and hero of the novel. He was jerking off into his pocket while he was watching a girl slowly reveal her leg from across a populated beach, sizzling Sexy shit right there, right? I didn't think so either. So back to Morris. Uh, he also wrote to J. Edgar Hoover a lot and developed a weird relationship with him. No, though it's believed to never really have affected anything important like, say, the civil rights movement. It was just, uh, you know, a strange relationship overall. I mean, when you open letters to J. Edgar with, my dear Edgar, it's safe to say they were on a fairly good and uh, familiar terms, you know? They didn't have a relationship that uh, Dr. Kinsey would have wanted to ask about, though, but it's still fucking weird. Who writes to J. Edgar Hoover? So, so Mr. Ernst is the big ticket name on this particular analysis book, which moves him solidly into the fuck category. Because, as everyone knows, I'm nothing if not a star fucker. 
As for the Mary portion, being that the only remaining contributor of substance to this book is the actual report itself, I'd have to say the report would fall under Mary, right? I mean, whether it's legal to marry an inanimate... Why can't I say words? Whether it's legal to marry an inanimate object or not, I I stand by my decision. So let's, let's go a little bit deeper. Who is Kinsey? Who would write the fucking report about fucking anyway? Alfred Kinsey, the man, the myth, the motherfucking legend among both mothers that fuck and people who want to fuck their mothers, was born in Hoboken, New Jersey on June 23, 1894. The son of Alfred Kinsey and Sarah Ann Charles. His father, a zealously religious and intimidating man, was a teacher at Stevens Institute of Technology. He insisted his son put aside his early interest in biology and instead enroll in Stevens to study engineering. After two lackluster and shitty years, Alfred rebelled and left for Bowdoin. Bowdoin? Bowdoin. For Bowdoin College in Maine, where he enrolled as a biology student. Father and son never reconciled. When Alfred graduated with high honors in 1916, his father refused to attend commencement. What a fucking dick face. Alfred became a student of applied biology at Harvard, where he came under the influence of William Mortar Wheeler, an eminent field biologist and staunch Darwinian. With Wheeler as his mentor, Kinsey jettisoned most of his religious ideas and embarked on a massive and meticulous Darwinian case study of the evolutionary taxonomy of the gall wasp, at one point logging, categorizing, and befriending some 8 million of them. After identifying several new species, Kinsey received his Doctor of Science degree in 1919 and joined the faculty of Indiana University the following year. He advanced through the account. He, my God damn. He advanced through the academic ranks, becoming a full professor in 1929. However, though, he didn't switch to studying sex until he taught a course on marriage and family, a course for senior and married students at Indiana University. High points of the course were Kinsey's illustrated lectures on the biology of sexual stimulation, the mechanics of intercourse, and the techniques of contraception, as were his spirited denunciation of repressive laws and social attitudes. Hmm. He also attempted to replace conventional ideas of normal sexual behavior with a new biological definition. Quote, nearly all the so-called sexual perversions fall within the range of biological normality, he said. Uh, unquote. He found himself at a loss when students asked him questions about sexuality in the general population. And upon looking for research to answer them, he found that a lot of information on human sexuality in general was scarce, non-existent, or just plain fucking wrong. It seems as though... Everyone was taking regular trips to Poundtown and not scientifically recording it. What the fuck, America? Naturally, there was only one thing Dr. Kinsey could do. He started writing erotic fan fiction involving Edward G. Robinson's huge dick, of course. You want this acting? He bellowed. Then you shall have it. Slap, slap. Applause. Academy Award. He didn't do that. No. He began collecting information about the sexual histories of students in his courses. And it fucking Edward G's got a huge stick and amassed a large quantity of them, of course, 
uh, sexual histories, not huge dicks. The Indiana students responded enthusiastically, and his course enrollments grew to 400 people by 1940. That's a lot of people who want to know about fucking. When the university's president, Herman Wells, made Kinsey decide between continuing his sex research and teaching the course, he chose the former. He's like, you know what? I like teaching people how to fuck, but I'd rather know about fucking. This was the origin of the Kinsey Report. He required students in his marriage course to have private conferences in which he took their sexual histories. On weekends and vacations, he conducted uh, similar interviews in nearby communities and later in such cities as Gary, Chicago, St. Louis, and Philadelphia. Gary, Indiana, by the way, is where Michael Jackson was born. Uh, Another weird sexual person. Three years later, Kinsey had gathered nearly 2,000 sexual histories and earned a grant of $1,600 from the National Research Council's Committee for Research on the Problems of Sex. By 1947, the committee had funded the Kinsey team with an additional $40,000 grant. I'm getting words, all of them. With support from the National Research Council and the Rockefeller Foundation, Kinsey was able to hire research assistants, expand the geographic scope of his work, and with the help of his lawyer, he founded the Institute of Sex Research at Gary, Indiana in 1947. Nope, not Gary, Indiana. He founded the Institute of Sex Research at Indiana University in 1947 to, quote, to continue research on human sexual behavior, unquote. In January 1948, Kinsey and his collaborators published Sexual Behavior in the Human Male. It made the bestseller list within three weeks, despite its 804 pages of generally dry scientific style and ponderous weight of statistics, tables, and graphs. By mid-March, it had sold 200,000 copies. The book, based on over 5,000 sexual histories, provided a series of revelations about the prevalence of masturbation, adulterous sexual activity, and homosexuality. People the world over have been groaning and boning to its sweet statistic poetry ever since. Nope, that's incorrect. Um, of course, in the real world, the report brought about a good deal of backlash from various religious groups and such because not everyone wants to understand sex. They want it feared, feared. Put your dick in a vagina, pull out a ticket on Satan's bus to eternal burning dickville. Allow your vagina to take dick. Well, you just earned an express trip to spiky dildo town in Hellville. Don't like it? Stop fucking. Unless... You're married and are only making a child. Then fuck away. You know, God's fine with that. But no ass play by anybody. Lest you want an eternity of never being able to shit. But always needing to. Yes. Imagine the discomfort, writhing, and agony. Sorry. I used up a good orifice torture with with the spiky dildo thing. I hate when that happens. Why get better and derive more pleasure out of the devil's slappy sweat dance? If God wanted you to know how to use your body, he would have tattooed instructions on the inside of your eyelids. Keep your genitalia in your shame-shielding undergarments, damn it. The more layers, the better. God may have created your dirty bits and all the pleasures that come with them, but 
Obviously, he doesn't want you to use or touch them, okay? God damn it. Amen. I'll move on. Originally, the idea was to have many, many, many reports. But due to all the drama and the funding issues that came with that, God stepped in and said, Like the Ten Commandments, you only get two tablets to give you info on understanding how to use your meat show and sausage wallet, people. So it was cut down to just the two, sexual behavior in the human male and sexual behavior in the human female. The book we're talking about this time analyzes the data from the male book. And due to the constraints of time and space, this book was published soon after the first report, but before the second. So, damn it, we don't get to understand women better. Fuck. No better understanding of women or deeper penetration of the vagina today. Knowledge of knowledge of the vagina, not sexual behavior of women's vaginas. Women, no deeper penetration of sexual women's vagina knowledge. Nailed it. So, what was in the Kinsey reports that everyone bought, but no one would admit to owning? Ooh, lots and lots of stuff. The end. Thank you for listening to Elton Reads a Book a Week. I hope you enjoyed this episode. We'll see you around next time. How fucked up would that be if I just left it there? Oh, you should have seen the look on your face. I wonder how many listeners I just lost just now. Hmm. On I go. The Kinsey Report is the first time that the mirror of plain data on the subject of sexuality was held up to society at large. And all the uglies that came with that. Although, questions were raised regarding the method with which the data was collected, sure, and the sample pool, etc. It still managed to open the door to a to a more open and honest conversation with people's understanding of sex in their own lives and the lives of everyone else. Before the Kinsey study, there were other attempts to collect data about sexuality. A total of about 8,000 sex histories were taken by perhaps a dozen investigators in the decades before the Kinsey study. Most of them were gathered through questionnaires. The total of cases was impressive, but none so complete in its interview style or questionnaire questions. Hmm. Often, the person answering the questionnaire would, um, what's the lie? <laughs> because, well, like I said before, uh, no one wants to talk about their sin and bits. There were some interesting things found in the findings. Take, for instance, this nugget from the pre-Kinsey report study by Dr. Catherine Bennett Davis for the Bureau of Hygiene for a study given to mostly college and normal college and normal school graduate women. It showed that 87% said they found happiness in their marital relationship. 7.1% had had intercourse before marriage. Half of those with their fiancé only. 44 44.1% had no information regarding contraception before marriage, but 74.1%, 74.1% had practiced it afterward. This is regarding females, of course, so the corresponding info might be found in the second Kinsey report on female sexuality, but we don't have that one. <sighs> but you get the gist of what the questionnaire results would render. You know, fucking liars. Because everyone knows all women are the devil's sex thought distributors, otherwise known as horny people, like everyone is a horny person.
it's safe to say that some of those fine, wonderful women were having way more sex than they admitted to. Because, come on, people are just people, no matter the society around them or what the society wishes them to be. People just like fucking it. You know, come on. Kinsey and his team gathered information via one-on-one interviews with their subjects using a closely guarded secret and field-tested methods of interviewing. They also went to great lengths to demonstrate to their subjects that complete anonymity, anonymity, complete anonymity would be guaranteed. So no pesky slut-shaming or the equivalent that didn't exist for men in 1948 or even now, for that matter. Though, times they are changing, fellas. Get ready. Manhorn is soon going to be just as frowned upon. Because who wants a Petri dish dick passing around STDs like candy on Halloween? Not anyone sane, I can assure you. Regardless, the guaranteed anonymity meant the Kinsey team could be almost certain of complete honesty from the subjects. Well, as close as you could get, anyway. There's always going to be the guy who claims to have a 12-inch dick that takes a licking and keeps on ticking and always leaves him satisfied. You know, that guy. That shit never made sense to me. If anything, you want to slightly lower expectations, then try your damnedest to over-deliver and over-perform, all right? You go like, look, I'm I'm nothing special, but uh, I don't think I've had any terrible reviews. I don't... I don't want to disappoint you. And then knock that shit out like it's the last time anyone in that area code is going to be fucking in this century. Best case scenario, it shows your humbleness and makes you the, it makes the other person think they found a diamond in the rough. Lock this big dick son of a bitch down. He's a keeper. Worst case, you get some credibly good gossip under your belt. So, win-win. Back to the Kinsey crew. So, gathering all these honest answers... Then they compiled them all together and extrapolated statistics and a bunch of boring scientific shit. The end result largely put a spotlight on things long suspected and sometimes outright known, but never candidly discussed and the blatantly obvious that has still taken decades to work themselves to the surface of American society. Like, for instance, we as people are complete and total shit at sex ed. According to the reports, kids were curious about sexuality much earlier than anyone realized. As early as five years old, in fact. However, rather than start talking to kids frankly about sex and their bodies during those formative years, it was put off or actively avoided, leaving a gap to be filled with schoolyard myth, stupidity, and misinformation. I know, because it it happened to me. At one point, I thought there were two vaginal canals. No kidding. I thought you fucked in one and a kid fell out of the other. Yeah, that's no shit. All because I half-assed misheard some shit from an idiot on a playground and was too embarrassed to follow up. Uh, It was one of those moments when you half-hear something because you're not paying attention and think, wait, what the fuck, too? Then, of course, they look at you waiting to see if you're the inexperienced jerk-off kid that's secreted his way into their super mature badass midst. You know, so you just nod and grin like you know. Obviously, that's how vaginas work. And uh, I mean, I should know. I'm 12 and I'm constantly laying pipe and getting ass. You know, no news there. Okay. Double vagina. Obviously, I'm old hat at double vaginal canals. And by the way, fellas, I'm a fully trained ninja as well. Now imagine that that, that that is your sex head until, you know, until you trick someone into fucking you, only to find out. 
reality is nothing like the vat of stupidity that that you've been subbing in for it. I feel like this is still happening today, but to a slightly lesser degree, today's sex ed in school is mandatory, if not offered in most school systems starting in elementary school. Though it was offered as an elective in a handful of schools back then, I can't imagine how terrible it was in the late 40s and early 50s. That was the same world that freaked out over Elvis doing weird pelvic thrust dances. They probably believed the words penis, vagina, and sex would literally invite God to rip their own dicks off in retribution. Or, at the very least, to have him grow a dick out of your face for spite. I used air quotes on the word dances, by the way, because they were more like epileptic fits, if, if we're being honest here. I mean, come on, still. Still, the adults at the time thought it looked looked like air humping, so they lost their minds, thinking that a man having a an on-air rock and roll seizure would lead to kids spontaneously fucking in their living rooms is a special kind of ignorantly crazy stupid. Like fearing that Jesus is literally everywhere and spying on you wherever wherever you are, or or that Islamists and Jews fearing God's wrath for eating pork. Bacon by the way, is the candy of meats, people, okay? God made pigs slow and meaty for a reason. Eat up, all right? I'm kidding. Believe what you want to believe in, all right? God bless. I'm not going to insult your religion by trying, but believe what you want. That's, that's, it's fine. It's a beautiful thing. Regardless, those 1940s and 50s adults with their overactive sex repulsion didn't want to admit And what the report actually found out was that teens had a really poor and dangerous understanding of how sex and their bodies worked. The world was lucky they weren't finding pubic crabs roaming the hallways and newborns in every malt shop dumpster back then. As it happens, adolescence really kicks off after a boy's first ejaculation, which occurs right around the age of 13, with only about 5% beginning adolescence before 11 or after 15. The interviewers found that, in general, boys who had fewer educational advantages, matured a few months later on the average, which is weird. Kinsey and his associates believed that that was accounted for by the fact that the boys in the group also had less nourishing food on average. The report exploded the idea that sexual capacity developed rather slowly toward a peak somewhere in the 20s for most men and then begins to, uh, begins to decline. Actually... Get this, capacity and activity both reach peak within a very short time after there is any capacity at all. Did you catch that? Men or boys, males, males, peak shortly after coming the first time. After that, it's a downhill run. What the hell? (laughs) Though it, it does seem to make sense because when it happens, it's pretty much all you want to do every waking second of your life. If I was paid a dollar jerk session, I'd have cracked a seven-figure paycheck every week. Or every other week. Probably every week. Though, though it says masturbation accounts for 38.5% of the total quote-unquote outlet for males, 16 to 20, it drops to 25% and rises to 29% after 35. For bachelors as a whole, adolescence sees the end of masturbation as the chief outlet. It's replaced by intercourse, assuming you can trick a partner into overlooking your constant masturbation. 
apparently from the 16-year-old to 20-year-old set, getting it on with another person provides 42.8% of the total, which rises to more than 50% in the 20s. It drops slightly to 43.7%. So what does all that mean? It means guys jerk off a lot until they find someone to park their penis in. It seems like a pretty logical notion, but... You'd be surprised how many penis carriers deny jerking off. I've met a few, and I'll tell you now, they're fucking liars. They are. They are lying. The book points to America adjusting its customs and what is socially acceptable to accommodate for that earlier-than-expected peak as a way to solve the problem, to help it out. That the way for compensating for sexual knowledge deficits due to morality hang-ups and demonizing might be helped by allotting for Junior's six-hour bathroom sessions and sticky socks, and not judging him for every boner tent in his shorts. As you might have probably guessed, somewhere between 1948 and now, that never, ever fucking happened, ever. I'm not sure how far Americans or the world in general is willing to go to make sexual outlets like masturbation more acceptable and commonplace, or even finding healthy quote-unquote outlets for healthy sexual expression that are socially acceptable. Hell, we can't even get people to accept that curse words aren't actual curses, or that the world is round, and that deadly viruses are in fact real and deadly. We thought we had all those cases cracked over a hundred years ago, but fucking, what the fuck? Still, doing the work of making sexuality a more commonplace topic of discussion and learning would do a lot of heavy lifting for male sexual inadequacy across the board, especially since virtually all boys, more than 99%, according to the report, begin some sort of sexual activity almost immediately after they have experienced their first ejaculation. We've come a long way since the late 40s, but we really have a long fucking way to go, too. Making sex easier to talk about only does so much, though. As the book points out, that sexual behavior is primarily a matter of individuality. With all the social influences of education, occupation, geography, etc. contributing on a secondary level, it's also where men get their sexual opinions, too. From themselves. Like some stupid blind idiot jerking off in the stupid circle jerking idiot, the blind jerking idiot. It's a vicious cycle is what I'm, is what I'm getting at. Fucking idiot tells himself he's good so he thinks it's, it's – as it happens, most men think they are, quote, normal, unquote. So their best guide – Their best guide for normality is their own behavior. This was the finding back in the late 40s, mind you. But it's still pretty relevant today, albeit with an entire internet of what, where, how, and who to put your dick into videos to to really sell, to really sell you on how normal you really are. The invention of the internet and the instant accessibility of all things fuck-related, guys, and girls for that matter, have a wealth of material to build a healthy self-delusion on. So, what does all that mean? It means you can't learn from yourself. Or or you have a brain-dead dumbass for a teacher. And a student. Both. There's a porn for everybody. And all of them tell you that your way is A-OK. For bad or good. 
overall, maybe a little self-education on sexuality would would help with that with the dipshit cycle. Use use the internet for something other than fetish porn about wiffle ball bats. I mean, I mean uh, wait, um, what what you you your 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 thing you your th- you know what you know what that is your thing. Now, a lot of stuff in the reports told us things we already kind of knew. Like married men that travel a lot for their jobs are more likely to have extramarital relations, while guys that don't travel tend to not cheat, or not as much anyway. If you're wondering why, if you're wondering about married guys yanking their cranks, according to the info used, only about 5% of married men flog their married bishop. Which leads me to believe that 95% of married men questioned were full of shit. Still, I defer to the Kinsey experts and their awesome questioning, even though that is a really, really, really low percentage. Now, here's some weird shit about older men. According to the book, there seem to be three kinds of old people. Men and women who have stopped living but cannot bear to quit. So they go back into the past or turn restlessly to strange cults. Secondly, there's the admittedly senile. Third are the rare and delightful individuals to whom the years have been friends and who are all the better friends because of the years. The last group are the ones that fuck a lot, which is a shame, really, because you'd think being admittedly senile, you'd have more fun. You could bang the same person for years and think they're new each time. You could feel like a dick swinging poon killer, but... Just be a monogamist. The perfect setup if you're down with that. I feel bad about playing down senility. I can only guess, really, how scary it must be. But but for me, optimism and fucking go hand in hand. At least in my, you know, at least at least in my book. For me, uh, if I'm going to be confused and scared by my own faulty brain, I'd like to think I could pull something fun out of that misery, even if it's fucking the same old strange. The uh, the cult group is a little scary. Although it doesn't explain what it means by strange cult, I read it to mean sex cult. Grannies and grandpas in retirement communities donning robes, mystic symbols, and gangbanging. So, so much gangbanging. You can throw up if you want to, if you haven't already. Pause this if you need to. <gasps> So the Kinsey findings are that the decline in sexual activity begins at the end of the teens and shows a remarkably steady drop through the rest of a man's life. The most revolutionary data the report revealed at the time, anyway, was that that impotence had overtaken only 27% of men covered in the study by the time they were 70. 55% were impotent at 75, yet still, still... The frequency of sexual outlet at the average age of 50 was 1.3 and not quite one a week at 70. There's something to look forward to. That silver lining again. Cranking out spunk into the golden years. Why do I do this to myself? I'll move on. Let's talk about sexual adventure and guilt. The tasty pizza and the don't touch that pizza, you chubby fuck. That shaming duet of human sexuality. The wanting to fuck and to feel bad about all the fucking you want to do. Oh, the joys of the human condition. 
This, as all things seem to, starts early in boyhood when a young man wants to get his self-fulfilling rocks off but is told by the world around him to keep his dick in his pants. This conflict, according to the writers, is very seldom resolved in favor of absolute continence. Now what does that mean? When choking your chicken is involved, the dick wins. There's a fork in the masturbatory road. A guy will choose to jerk off rather than a situation that would make him jerk off less. Sure, sure there are some outliers. Priests, monks, guys that think their penis is being watched by ghosts. Blah, 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 blah. But on the average, the dick wins. There's a life lesson here for any ladies listening. If it's between a boring-ass seminar about conflict resolution or, or, or insurance or... Or uh, I, I don't I don't know fucking home building or so or you know what or or if it's between that or faking sick to stay home and jerk off that sick day is happening and there's gonna be some jerking know what I'm saying high five up high yeah after saying that I I wouldn't want to touch my hand either good call getting back to it society again strongly nourishes the feeling of guilt. And does it ubiquitously. When taboos are established and enforced, a sense of shame is instilled in younger men under the guise of guidance. That's my opinion, anyway. To be fair, until the report came out, according to the writers, guilt triumphed over publicly admitted adventure. So, so far as the overt activity of society is concerned. I think we've come a long way since that revelation was made, but not much. You know what I'm, t- you know what I'm saying. Slut shame much, people? I mean, make people feel bad about touching themselves, about 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 anything sexual? Yeah. You know what I'm talking about. Someone talking about tapping, smashing, poking, prodding, um, ass or mouth, ass to mouth, and hands, knees and toes, knees and toes, or whatever, um, more than once in their lives. Slut, whore, gross, or some variation thereof. People can be vicious when weaponizing shame. Why? It never That never made sense to me either. What the hell do you care how much sex anyone is having? Worry about the sex you're not getting because people are creeped out by you worrying about the sex other people are getting so fucking much. Sexual behavior is the product of a vast assortment of factors superimposed upon the original instinct. How those factors are applied, invented, erases, etc. inevitably shapes people's sexual behavior. It's hard enough knowing your own fucking business. The book goes on to talk about what isn't included in the book and what they thought would be revealed in more study and more volumes. Volumes which, unfortunately, never happened. Things like the fact that no African Americans were included in the study. What the fuck? There was no attempt to consider the variations in sexual behavior which may arise in families of different national origins, kind of families transitioning from the sexual heritage or customs of whatever of their homeland to America's version. None of that was studied. Neither were the sectional customs, differences between the sexual activity of men from the South versus the North, or differences that different 
regions present sexually? Does a man from Texas have a more bent dick than a guy from Vermont? Does that affect his confidence? Does it cause him to walk funny, wear looser underwear? Does it make uh, does it make explaining random boners easier by saying he's carrying a large cheese doodle in his pocket? They didn't find that out. Damn it! You know we want to know: is the curvature more of a right angle, or just a gentle grotesque hook kind of shape? And again, we'll never know. I added that last bit. Obviously, that's not in the report or book. Uh, there was also no historical tracing or through line from studies in the past as there were no Kinsey reports before the Kinsey report, obviously. No one was present in colonial days to gather stats and ask clinical questions about sexual practices like, oh, uh, bundling. Now, the practice of bundling, uh, as explained in the book, it's a little weird. It was the custom uh, during colonial times for an engaged couple, fully dressed, to occupy the family double bed during the prospective bridegroom's winter evening visits to his betrothed's home. There's no, there's no comparison data of the sexual activities of men in areas where the couples were separated by a board and those that weren't. Duh. What the fuck? Hey, soon-to-be-married couple, it's cold, it's late, he, he should stay the night in the in the family bed, but clothes on. No fucking understand. You know what? Give me that board over there. Lay the ship between you. No, no, the big one. Don't be a pervert. Small board, please. Asshole. See, lay, lay it in there. Like, yep, that'll, yep. That'll stop the fucking because everyone knows that all sexual thoughts and activities die when a person encounters anything wooden. Ever notice how people never ever fuck when there's a tree around huh only satan only satan bones around trees ask the people in salem think use your brain so good night sleep well no touching think about the board god is watching that's insane also not studied the effects of migration on human sexuality because uh people uh like to fuck where they are and uh when they're on the go and when they get where they are going to they also take their particular brand of fucking with them. Uh, how did that affect their behavior? Did they fuck while walking on horseback? How has that changed? How has that changed American fucking? Did that instill an American desire to fuck while riding animals? Did that make them want to fuck the animals they were riding? We'll never know. At least not in a Kinsey-style report. Please don't fuck any animals. Lastly... Does the possibility of anonymity in the city, the greater variety of population, affect sexual behavior? Do farm boys get busy more than grubby city folk slash boys slash men folk? We don't know, as far as the book knows. It does say that 23 to 37% of all husbands between the ages of 16 and 50 should be in jail, according to the strict letter of the law on the books, in the books, of the 1940s, which made adultery a crime. And that's just adultery. Juicier so-called crimes like homosexuality, which were generally outlawed back then, carried hefty jail times and fines. 
Homosexuality is a big topic in this rundown of the first report, as it seems to be the most taboo topic of the day, other than jerking off, I think. Times have changed a lot since the days of uh, passages like this, thankfully. Quote, It has become increasingly apparent, for example, that police court judges, being generally shocked by homosexual behavior, are likely to say, I should like to send this damnable creature away for life. As a matter of fact, the lower court judge tends to give the defendant the limit of the jail sentence permitted in the statute. But, on appeal, we find that the upper court judges are likely to say, Can't we get this poor devil a psychiatrist? That's a direct quote from the book. What in the fuck? For being gay, you are either considered a creature that deserved life in prison or just out of your fucking mind. Not not to say that, okay, that's not to say that people who see psychiatrists are insane or out of their minds. I don't need those emails. No. Just that seeing homosexuality as some sort of mental illness or instability is, is monstrously stupid. I, I have to... I have a very healthy respect for the field of psychology. And Frazier is one of my pop culture heroes. So suck it. All right? Yeah. Yeah, that was reductive. I know. But but fuck it. it uh, fuck it. All that aside, it, it never ceases to amaze me how horrific people can be toward each other. For all sorts of reasons. Let alone who any other person is attracted to. Somehow, criminalizing someone's ingra- ingrained preference and seeing them as less of a person or not as a person at all because of it is sickening. Yet, in the same report, it hints at breakthroughs that were yet to come, describing sexuality as an ill-defined aspect of the human experience. shows again and again that sexuality isn't a cookie-cutter, one-size-fits-all generalized description. It is instead shaped by numerous factors like society, social norms, biology, heredity, and personal development, and more. It took the Kinsey Report to kick off an exploration to discover that sexuality is just as diverse, nuanced, and individualistic as a person's personality. While there's a certain easy convenience to saying, oh, he likes women, so he's straight, or she likes women, so she's gay, it's really not that simple. Well, it's not always that simple. There are people that just are straight, and but you know what I mean. With all those perceived definitions, there are gradient shifts and blends that kind of make these definitions actually meaningless. Is that a bad thing? To not easily define someone's sexuality? Uh, The inability to frame someone as this thing or that thing? Uh, No. But for some people, it is. Thankfully, that group is dwindling with each passing year. Still, the questioning lingers. As ugly as it may be, because it seems to either lead or, or stem from an irrational hatred of some kind. Even more, even more thankfully, is that tolerance and acceptance has been gaining real traction and seems to be almost snowballing in recent years. Trans folks are now able to quote unquote come out, and so and so called gender norms are being thrown into the spotlight, questioned. Discussions on how to move forward are real and happening. And integrating into the culture, good things are happening. 
The Kinsey Report only offered us the beginning of an, uh, of an emancipation from the lies of the widespread dogma regarding sex. It isn't the final word or anything, of course. It was only the, the beginning of an exploration that's still happening and bearing fruit today. That's not bad for a, that's not bad for a modestly financed research study. For the first three years, Kinsey paid the expenses out of his own savings. All in, it cost less than $200,000. What did Kinsey get for kicking off a sexual revolution and providing the material for a million bestsellers based on his work? So much, so much money. So much money and ass. He was a sex celebrity doing blow off of starlets constantly in the limelight. Once, after being busted leaving a mixed-gender orgy after a cocaine bender in the seedy nightclub with Edward G. Robinson, he was quoted as saying, When you're a hustler, baby, you don't play the game. The game plays you. Kinsey gonna play that game. Kinsey gonna play that game. Hey, hey, reporter guy, have you seen G. Robinson's penis? He'll whip it out. Eddie, Eddie, whip it out. Eddie, Eddie, look, I'm telling you, this shit is huge, my guy. Of course, none of that happened. No. Actually, actually, he made nothing. No money. He, he made no money. Seriously. Professor Kinsey, nor any of his associates, got shares in the royalties of their book or any of the books that their report helped make, including this one. Although, the royalties are large. Actually, uh, Kinsey made substantial economic sacrifices to carry on his work. He gave up writing textbooks in his own specialty of entomology. So, I guess that sucked. I'm not a I'm not a big fan of bugs, let alone studying them. Really, I much rather have pulled in fat checks for writing books about fucking. For all the toil and work for no monetary gain seems like a pretty big ass pain in the ass. Especially when you realize that uh all he actually got for it was a pretty big ass kicking from critics. There were and are still many critics of the work Kinsey did. Some take umbrage with who he interviewed. Most point to his many interviews with male prostitutes and actual pedophiles. This was brought up many times during Kinsey's lifetime. Basically, his response was, I'm paraphrasing here. Uh, yeah, male prostitutes talk very candidly about sexual experience and have had a lot of them because, you know, they're fucking prostitutes. A lot of people don't like to talk about dicking or being dicked out, but, uh, they don't mind. As for pedophiles, Kinsey more or less said, again, I'm paraphrasing. I'm a fucking scientist that studies sex, not a morality judge that judges fucking sex. The research I did was into human sexuality, and guess what, fuck faces, like it or not, pedophilia is part of it. So, I spoke in a frank manner with pedophiles that allowed them to speak honestly and openly to me about their experiences so that I could gather accurate, cold, hard data. That's it. Would you rather not know how a pedophile operates, motherfuckers? I don't know why I did that with his voice, but in essence, Kinsey wasn't there to restrict the view of his findings to what the current socially acceptable view of sexuality was. He simply wanted to get an accurate survey and collection of data on the real picture of human sexuality across the entire spectrum. Seriously. You can't expect to draw an accurate map if you choose to believe that some parts of the landscape you're mapping are bad and other parts are good to the point of excluding the bad. 
what use is a shitty map like that? So, so, so according to the map you drew me, Kyle, there are no rivers. That is correct. At all. You found no rivers. At all. Anywhere. Nope. Rivers are an unholy aberration created and perpetrated by the devil Satan to trick us into bathing. So no, I don't believe in them and don't believe they should be reflected in any manner of recorded data up to and including maps I create. You do see how their exclusion could be a problem though, Kyle, because as you can see, we're standing on the bank of a river right now. And the devil would like to thank you for your service in spreading his soul-stealing bathing message, Sinner. What? No. The, the map you drew indicates solid land here, when clearly it's not. I don't see your point. It's, it's going to take us who knows how long to find a way around this, Kyle. What, what if we can't? We only brought enough supplies to traverse the train you recorded. We didn't plan for any rivers, Kyle. Because you didn't draw any fucking rivers, Kyle. Your map is inaccurate garbage. That's your opinion. As for me, I'm going to cross this flowing land in front of us and see you on the other side, God willing. And if the good Lord should choose to separate me from breathable air, so be it. I'll see you in the solid, non-devil waterlands of heaven, good sir. Good day. In a 1995 piece in the Washington Post, a group of religious conservatives argued that the sexual revolution of the latter half of the century started by the Kinsey Report is based on a fraud and must be reversed. I don't know how that would have reversing a sexual revolution, but this was because this was because the director of the Kinsey Institute revealed that Kinsey's conclusions on the sexuality of young children were based on not on a scientific study, but on the secret history of a single pedophile. He kept a diary of his experiences with 317 pre-adolescent boys. John Bancroft, director of the Kinsey Institute for Research in Sex, Gender, and Reproduction at the Indiana University in Bloomington, clarified that in sexual behavior in the human male, Kinsey included two tables documenting pre-adolescent sexual experience. The findings were an important substantiation of the Freudian view of sexuality as a component that is present in the human animal from earliest infancy, Kinsey wrote. But as Bancroft said, the material in the tables came from one man, an extraordinary man with incredible numbers of sexual experiences on which he kept very careful notes. Kinsey gives the impression that the data came from three or four men. But it was just one, Bancroft said. He speculates that Kinsey kept that bit to himself because he thought the public might not react well to his use of data from a sex criminal. How valid this information is, obviously one could argue about now, the director said. That, that, that was all from the article. Personally, I find this to be a little strange and protective. Meaning, why would Kinsey fudge the sources on this one aspect of the report over others? This is my just speculating, but I think he might have talked to more than one pedophile and kept the gross notes of the one and used all of it. Because Then, upon publishing his report, he, he tried to downplay the number of pedophiles he talked to so that it wouldn't influence the judgment on the rest of the study. Sort of like, yeah... Some of the bananas I used were mushy, but it made one hell of a pudding, right? If you can bring the number of mushy bananas that you used down to just one, instead of saying 10 or 11, then maybe people will say, okay, 
it was just the one. I'm willing I'm willing to taste the pudding instead of chucking it straight into the fucking garbage. That's just my completely uneducated personal opinion. Obviously, you think what you want to think. If you want to learn about the pedophile that he talked about, um, I mean, who knows who would be? Curiosity is a strange and fickle demon. The article goes on to say this. There was no contact with any of the boys by anyone at the Institute, only the man's notes, he said. The Institute has never carried out any sexual experiments on children. As for the pedophile, who was not paid, he is cataloged at the Kinsey Institute under a pseudonym, which could be decoded, but will not be if Bancroft has anything to do with it. The man is long dead. He died in 1955, the director said. So mystery solved about the guy. Okay, curiosity sated. Dead motherfucking pedophile. Now, was Kinsey right or wrong? I mean, for me, it's kind of not the point. And I'll tell you, it sounds bad, but I'll tell you why in a minute. All right. Let's talk about what might be considered positive results of the Kinsey report first and get and get away from all the fucking ugh, ugh, that we went over a second ago. With all the harsh criticism, it's good to remember that good came out of the report too. Most memorably, of course, porno, pornographic media, porno plenty, pornocopia, pornopalooza, all the porn you know and love and the stuff you hate stems from this report. Well, not, that's not totally true. Not all of the porn. I mean, there was porn before the Kinsey report, of course. People were whipping out their junk and drawing pictures of it since the time man could point and say, pee-pee, can I have a picture of that pee-pee? No. It's the modern porn you can thank the Kinsey report for, i.e. porn mags with centerfolds, untrimmed pubes, and Dean Koontz-style mustachioed men swinging dongs like wiffle ball bats. Sorry. Yet, Kinsey's report helped bring into the existence swinging 60s porno and such all the way through to today's Pornhub stravaganza of the Twitter net. All that stemmed from the Kinsey report. The early breakout star, of course, being Hugh Hefner's Playboy magazine. Hefner himself has cited Kinsey as one of the chief inspirations in launching Playboy. In 1948, he wrote a college paper on Kinsey's report on the American Mail. He got an A for his research, but marked down to a B plus for his conclusions. Hefner relishes what he believes are the purgative effects Kinsey's work had on society. When people talk about the sexual revolution and say, well, this is a quote from an LA Times interview with him. When people talk about the sexual revolution and say, well, behavior really didn't change that much. That's essentially not true, Hefner said. People were sleeping with each other before, but they lied about it. By the end of the 1960s, there was co-ed cohabitation on campuses. A nice middle-class boy could live with a girl out of wedlock and be accepted by the rest of society. And by the 70s, a woman who was not married, if she chose to, could have a child and not be shunned by society. Before Kinsey, sex was nearly invisible. Newspapers and magazines described syphilis and rape as social disease and criminal assault. That's from an L.A. Times uh, interview with Hefner from 1991. So yeah, Kinsey helped to get Playboy into the hands of puberty-stricken, sticky-handed youth. Is that a positive? Being that 
it pervasively spread nudity in its shared imagery. And that made its way into the zeitgeist and has influenced our culture here and abroad to be more comfortable in showing ourselves and in turn talking about our bodies in a way that didn't exist before. I think that's a pretty good thing. Playboy and later its slew of competitors lowered our collective inhibitions towards sexuality in a way that was appealing and easy to digest. Just think of all the Playboys under the bed scenarios played for comedy in countless movies through the 70s and 80s. And all the Playboy talk in, in movies or in shows and music. All the penthouse form references in pop culture and on and on and on. We all knew what that meant. And the more it's brought up, the more it's normalized. Nudity has slowly been normalized in a massively generalized way because of Playboy. And with it, our conversations about sexuality is too. Slowly, over time. Uh, yeah, personally speaking, I can remember finding Playboy secondhand and hoarding them shits like I'd found Confederate gold. It really did help smooth out the transition from misunderstood socially awkward teen boy to misunderstood socially awkward man boy. Did it abnormally skew my perceptions and judgment of reasonable expectations of women? I don't think so. My rejection of all women that weren't Playboy centerfold level is pretty consistent with traditional American values. If I'm going to date lower than that, I'm not realistically valuing my self-worth as a man, am I? I mean, I'm not an animal. Moving on. That that was a that was a joke, by the way. I don't I don't need you thinking I'm some vainglorious prick. I'm not like that. Uh, ask all the playmates I've rejected through the years. They can attest to my respect of all women, even when I'm not demanding barefoot pregnancy, silence, and to never drive my car because they can't fucking drive. That was all the sexist stuff I could think of at the moment. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yes, I did double down because I find misogyny funny because it deserves to be mocked. Yes. Women of all kinds, I love you. Ah, uh, now, speaking of women, this next portion has very little to do with you beyond you being students, just like guys. I just need a segue and thought I could do one very smoothly and quick and dirty, but as you can see, it's drawn out way too long and it's just sad. So now we'll talk about how the report affected education. I think anyone that's been through the U.S. education system has seen a movie or two regarding human sexual biology, anatomy, pregnancy, condoms, I think. It's been a while since I saw it. Anyway, sex education is now a staple in the curriculum of American public education. This is from a PBS article on Kinsey's influence. Quote, Alfred Kinsey grew up in a world where sex education, such as it was, focused on abstention. Masturbation was held to be sinful, a sickness with the power to erode one's physical health and moral rectitude. Moral rectitude. Mortal. Mm. People were occasionally committed to mental institutions for excessive masturbation or even, on rare occasions, castrated. Homosexuality was guarded with more than mere disgust, for sodomy was in most states a felony published, published punished by imprisonment. Between the two world wars, some junior high schools and high schools started offering sex education, either as part of required biology classes or under euphemisms like mental health or social hygiene. Even then, 
These classes focused on sexual temperance and the hazards of losing control, including the risk of sexually transmitted diseases and out-of-wedlock pregnancies, end quote. So back then, they were letting Jesus take the wheel on sex ed. And if you know anything about Jesus, you know that he's not one for driving, especially when fucking is concerned. I don't know what happened to that metaphor. It fell apart somewhere. But you know what I mean. The world, before the reports, was a little undernursed in the sex education buffet department. That one was weird, too. Never mind. So after the report, things changed. It seems that slowly but surely, the to-be-avoided-at-all-cost sex talk with kids took a, took a turn. It began by discussing sex in a biological sense, not a, mor- not a moral sense. All scientific info. No, when a man loves a woman, talk. And it works. Birds and bees, fucking dead. Just the facts. As it turned out, comprehensive sex education reduces teen pregnancy, the transmission of sexually transmitted diseases, and gets innocent animals fucked a whole lot less. Okay, I made up the last one. I'm not, I hope it does. Please don't fuck any animals. That spark of taking sex education in a different direction had its beginnings with the Kinsey Report. You can thank him for all the film days in biology or whatever that class was called in elementary school. My memory is terrible. Maybe I don't masturbate enough. Or is it... Wait, no, it's too too much? Damn it. Finally, for me, you say you want a revolution. <laughs> well, you know, if I say any more, I will get sued. So how did Kinsey influence the sexual revolution? It, uh, it started it. Or at least had a hand in it, in pushing it along. Its study of sexuality of men, from its weird scale of homosexuality to its clinical look at all sexuality in an equal way, paves the way for how sexuality is being viewed today. As he and his team found out in a rudimentary form that is being refined to ever greater detail today, is that sexuality is far from binary, meaning one thing or the other thing, never anything in between. It just so happens that he saw from a scientific point of view that there's not just a gay or straight, but a spectrum. He tried to apply what is now seen as a crude scale to the gradient shift he observed in in male sexuality to define that blur from straight to homosexual. It wasn't the best start, but it was a start. Without it, our understanding of male and human sexuality in general would be radically different, if not non-existent. Uh, the sexual revolution the reports helped along empower people to see their sexuality as being defined by themselves and not by society. This carried over into the feminism movement of seeing women as equal to men, sexually and, and then socially. This emboldened the demand to be viewed and treated as equals in society at large. Today, because of what the Kinsey Report helped start groups that were once marginalized socially, because of their sexuality, have found a voice and seat at the table of every facet of society, from politics to pop culture, all because Kinsey couldn't find reliable information about what people did with their penises and vaginas. Dicks and pussies. Pleasure pump and birth cannon. The Bone Ranger and Lady Jane. Wiener and Taffy Puller. Okay, I'll stop. All in all, after all this time, it's not what's in the Kinsey Report, but about what it began. 
See, I had this idea to update all the info I got from the book, rattle off a bunch of statistics and findings to bring everything up to date and up to speed, but thought better of it. Because I figured that's not really the point of the Kinsey Report anymore. It, it was a first attempt to speak frankly about a subject that affects everyone, but was deemed too risque to discuss out in the open. By blowing open the idea of secrecy regarding human sexuality, it started the whisperings of a conversation. A conversation that has continued to grow louder ever since. It's not about how off or antiquated the data is now, how quaint or horrific their descriptions or findings seem now. It's the fact that they were the foundation on which people could build a more satisfying open dialogue about themselves and others. It showed that you are not alone or some alien in your feelings about sex or who you were and are. You weren't the only one, and that's okay. Because you're a person, just like, just like they are people. This spark ignited a flame that led to more acceptance of sexuality in our culture and of sexuality that might differ from our own. It led to tolerance, and that tolerance has led to generations accepting the people around them in a more complete way. Or maybe even just a little bit more than before. Laws have been developed because of that continued understanding and acceptance, creating a more vibrant society. That maybe one day won't see someone as something different than themselves, but instead as someone who just likes different shit than they do. I mean, what's wrong with that? The world after the report is a lot more tolerant of varied sexuality than it was before the study was ever proposed. Kinsey's work changed the world by trying to help us answer questions about ourselves, questions that up until this study we're largely locked behind a wall of shame we created for ourselves. In looking at human sexuality as like that of any other animal and analyzing the information in his clinical and statistical way, it offered an honest look at who we are in all of its nuance, both socially acceptable or not, and said, now can we all just shut up? It's out there. Talk about it or not. There it is. So we chose to talk, kind of. I mean, we're still inching along, but the, we're a lot further along than the time before the Kinsey Report ever would have been. Truthfully, I think that world would have completely fucking sucked. People should be comfortable expressing who they are in a world that's all right with hearing it. And we should all try to listen a little more, but keep talking too, you know? Now, just to lighten the mood before I go, here are a few terrible jokes I found on the internet regarding sexuality. They're not mine, so I can take no credit for any laughs or hatred or disgust or, I don't know, oh, that they might generate. Please save your hate mail for another episode with worse jokes. Now, all of the jokes. Okay. Just up front. This shit is bad. Okay? It's bad. Ready? What do you call a policeman who shaves her pubes? A constable. <laughs> That's fucking Jesus Christ. Okay, now a dick joke to even that one out. Where do bad dicks go? To the penis tentury. What the fuck? All right, this is what I got when I Googled sexuality joke. I've just started a sexual relationship with a blind woman. It's very rewarding, but quite challenging. It took me ages to get her husband's voice right. Now, to be fair, that was pretty good. This one, though, here it is. Here's the trans one. How many people does it take to screw in a light bulb? Just one. 
But people will always ask if it's had, you know, the change. <sighs> what the fuck? <laughs> oh, my God. Ah, these fucking things almost make me want to quit the internet entirely. But ah, where would I get my wolf of porn? Shit. Thank you for listening to Elton Reads a Book a Week. If you enjoyed this episode, please give it a five-star rating and write a nifty little review to read that I'll read. It only takes a minute or two. You can follow the podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, and all the other social media things. I think there's even a Twitch channel that I don't post to hardly ever. I should. I really should. But if I'm missing any any social media thing, uh, email me at eltonreadsabookaweek at gmail.com. It's all one word. And let me know. Um, or, you know, if you agree or disagree, have questions, suggestions, anything you want, just just hit me up on any of those, Facebook, all that. And you can leave me a written or audio message. Huh? Audio. At anchor.fm. But if you leave me an audio message, I'm, I might put it in the episode. Uh, with your permission, of course. You can also contribute to the podcast through anchor.fm or through the Patreon page. I'll put those links in the episode description. But, you know, above all else, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for listening. I appreciate it so much. You have no idea. I want you to have a great day, week, month, Christmas, and New Year's. And please, whatever other holidays that might come up between you and me getting together again, I want you to have a great one. So till we meet again, would you mind reading a book? Huh, come on. Don't let them die out. Thanks again. Bye. Bye.